Welcome, welcome, welcome. Have you ever noticed the crazy British people and their fascinating fascination with the monarchy? Like <laughs> Diane, Charles, Elizabeth, I don't know what all their names are. I'm sure some, anybody here a big like monarchy royalty? <clears throat> Good, because I was going to have to send you out of the room. You were not... <laughs> We have this fascination with like kings and queens, like the story King Arthur and Robin Hood, or maybe it's just the Brits, right? It's not us Americans. We just, we're better than that, right? Let me show you our monarchy here. Um, next slide there, Peyton. I mean, you go to Disney World, it's a friggin' castle when you walk into the place, and every, Donald Duck's even a king for some reason in that picture. I mean, think about, think about Disney movies, if you will. Give me some kings and queens and princesses in a Disney movie. What? Aurora, she's a princess, and like Prince Eric, like I don't know who his dad is, he was a great king or something though, what else? Cinderella, she, she goes to the ball, Prince Charming, whatever, meets her. Elsa is a, I mean, Arendelle, the princess of Arendelle. What else? Who, what? Rapunzel, Aladdin, that, he's like a sultan. That's, that's monarchy, right? That's a, I wrote a few more down. Lion King, Scar and Simba, Mulan, there's an emperor, sultan, a beast. The beast was a king or a prince of some sort, right? Yeah, and then... If that's not enough, we've made our own American royalty. Here's, here's our American royals right here. <laughs> like, we don't have royalty, so we just, these people, well, I mean, at least Kanye was a musician. He had something that made him famous, but Kim Kardashian is famous, essentially, for being famous, and that, that's exactly what a monarch is in England, right? They're just essentially famous for being famous. We're looking at Scripture, these monarchy of misfits in First and Second Samuel. It's Israel's first kings. It's Saul and it's David. We talked about last week, they're not good guys or bad guys per se. They're much more nuanced. They're much more complex than that. Not everything they do is perfectly good, and not everything the bad guys do is perfectly bad. So let me just kind of catch you up to where we are with Israel, these people of God that we're going to be talking about tonight. God rescues them from slavery in Egypt, brings them into eventually the promised land. Israel is governed by God. It's a theocracy. You know, we have a democracy. This is a theocracy. God is their king. They are to obey the laws of God. To kind of help them along, God gives them judges. And if we don't know what a judge is, it's kind of a tribunal leader. They're military leaders. They're governors. They're the Supreme Court. They're prophets and spiritual leaders all kind of wrapped into one. And every tribe does it a little bit differently. And so actually Israel goes through this period of chaos where the judges aren't doing all the same thing. They're all doing different things. And so it's a period of moral chaos. That brings us up to the book of Samuel. So we started last week in chapter 1. We met Hannah. Hannah is barren. She can't have kids. And in desperation, she takes her sadness before God. And she prays. And God hears her prayer. God responds to her prayer. And in his grace, God gives her a son. She names that son Samuel. And she dedicates that son to God for his service and for his purpose. We ended last week in chapter 2 with a song that she had written. And the themes in that song, I don't know if you remember, looking back, there's a couple themes we can pull out of that song that are going to play out throughout the rest of First and Second Samuel. One is God opposes the proud 
and he exalts the humble, number one, and he still does today. Number two, God despites human evil, but he's still at work within our suffering. Those are two themes we're going to see play out over and over in this book. And as she ends her song, she does a little bit of foreshadowing about this monarchy to come. She ends her song, verse 10, he gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. Anointed one is a messianic figure. Uh, Think of David, uh, but it's actually pointing us even further ahead to Christ. So I gave you guys some homework. I'm going to give you homework every week as we go through this series. So you should have read, I hope, chapters 2 through 7. If you read that, I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary or reminder. If you didn't read that, well, this will be all new information for you, I guess. Samuel, like all of us, he grows up. He becomes a great prophet, a great leader. And at the same time, as Samuel is growing up, the Philistines, you've heard of them before, right? They rise up as Israel's arch nemesis. And there's all these battles happening between the Philistines and between Israel. And there's this crucial battle that happens. And the Israelites decide it's a good idea to bring along with them the Ark of the Covenant. They bring this Ark of the Covenant to the battle. If you're new to church, you don't know what the ark is. It's a little golden box that Moses and his people built, and the Ten Commandments are inside of the box, and there's angels with their wings open on top. And on top, it kind of looks like a throne a little bit, so God, uh, Israel's king, his, their internal, invisible, omnipotent creator king, is supposed to sit on that throne. But you can't see him because the whole heavens can't contain their king. And so the ark is just a representation of their king and his throne. That's essentially what the ark is. So the Israel's, Israelites got this golden box. And they get arrogant. They're like, you know what? We're going we're gonna to march out this ark that we brought with us. We're going to march it out as this kind of magic box. And it's going to grant us victory in this battle. Remember back to Hannah's prayer. God opposes the proud doesn't matter who you are. And so because of their pride, because of their arrogance, God allows them to be defeated. And the Philistines become the raiders of the lost ark. They take it with them. And then this funny story happens. They take this ark and they they put it in their temple next to their god, uh, Dagon. Kind of looks like dragon. His name is Dagon. And they sit the ark Israel's God next to their God. And the next day they come back into the temple and they look and poor little Dagon has fallen on his face. Hmm, must have been the wind that blew Dagon over. So they pick him up, they put him back on the shelf. The next day, same thing happens. He falls off the shelf again. This time his head and his hands break off. They're like, we don't know about this God, this Ark of the Covenant thing here. We need to do something with it. And so they start to move it around from village to village. And That unleashes God's power and fury. Every time they move the the box to a new village, there's plagues that come upon the village. There's tumors that come upon the people on the outside of their skin, and they just keep moving it village after village, and it's the same thing. Finally, they're like, we're not dumb like Pharaoh was back with the Egyptians, and so we're going to give that darn thing back. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to do one better. We're going to give it back, and we're going to put some gifts in there with that box. Guys, did you read what the gifts were? Golden rats and tumors. I don't know where you go to have somebody make a golden tumor or what that even looks like, but they give this box back with the tumors and the rats of gold. That brings us now up to chapter 7. We're getting to where we're going tonight. Samuel calls the people to turn back to God. That's called repentance. He says, turn from your idols. We don't worship rats. We don't worship golden tumors. 
And then through this, they make him their spiritual judge, and he leads them spiritually, and he also leads them through military battles. And as he does that, Israel begins to have some huge victories. And there's this one occasion, they have a huge victory. And to mark the location, they take a large stone and they name it Ebenezer. Not like Scrooge, they just name it Ebenezer, which simply means stone of help. And they set up that stone there at this place of victory as a reminder that it was God, their king, who gave them that victory. A little more humility now. And so we get to chapter 8. They've had this great battle, and they've set up their Ebenezer, and they're at a time of peace and prosperity, which was rare for Israel, but it was rare. Up until two, three hundred years ago, rarely were people at peace and prosperity as a nation for any length of time. But they're at this beautiful time of peace and prosperity, and we get to chapter 8, and it's a big turning point, not just in the book of Samuel, but it's a big turning point in the history of humanity, and especially in Old Testament history. We transition from Samuel, who was a judge, to Saul, who was going to be the first king. So we tra transition from judgeship to kingship. We transition from these tribal confederacies to a monarchy. But most importantly, we transition from the kingship of God to the kingship of man, or so it would seem. And so we pick up there tonight. We're going to go all the way through chapter 8. I'll just start in verse 1. As Samuel grew old, as we all do, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Obijah, Ob Obijah, Obijah, you guys can figure that one out. His oldest sons held court in Beersheba. Now, to my knowledge, this isn't how it worked with judges. It wasn't hereditary. You didn't become a judge and, you know, it's not a monarchy. You're a judge and then your kids become judge. It's not how it works. So Samuel is a great leader. He's a great judge. But we're all nuanced and we're all flawed. And so Samuel here is exposing a little bit of his nepotism, a flaw that he has that perhaps some commentators believe led to what's to follow in this story. Verse 3 says, But they were not like their father, who was a pretty good guy, for they were greedy with money. They accepted bribes and they perverted justice. His sons used their political office for personal gain. I'm thankful nobody does that today. <laughs> So Israel has a problem. That's what we're laid up with in the beginning of the story here. Samuel is old, and his sons are degenerates. It's a problem. Verse 4 says, Finally, all the elders of Israel, the elders are these leaders of the tribal clans, it says they met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. It says, Look, they told him, you are now old, duh, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us. And if I haven't mentioned before, to judge in this context means to govern, not literally judging them. Give us a king to govern us like all the other nations have. Israel was different than all the other nations. All the other nations around them had a king. They had a palace. They had a crown. They had a throne. If an alien had landed in these ancient worlds and said, take me to your leader, every other nation would have known exactly where to take the aliens. They said, here's our king, this is our leader. The alien had landed in Israel and said, take us to your leader. They would have got that Dora the Explorer look where she just looks at you and blinks and doesn't have anything to say. Where do we take it? Because we don't have a leader. We've got tribal leaders. We've got Samuel, but he's constantly on the move. He doesn't have a, a throne. He doesn't have a crown. He doesn't have a palace. God is supposed to be our king, but geez, we can't see him. How do we take them to our leader? Israel had a king, but they didn't have a king like everyone else. They didn't have one they could see. They didn't have one they could touch. 
And so there's some irony here in them asking for a king at this moment. Because just one chapter earlier, remember we said the Philistines had attacked, Samuel prayed, God thunders against them, and the Israelites have one of the greatest victories of their history. And so all of a sudden now they want what they've already got, a king. Actually, they want something less than they've already have. How much does that mirror our Christian life? We have a king. His name is Jesus. Nothing gets better than Jesus. He brings us to great victories. He brings us out of moral chaos. He gave us victory over death that we sang about. He gives us the greatest peace in the rest of our lives. And then in the greatest irony, we start to try to replace Jesus with other kings. Like Israel, we want what everyone else has. We have FOMO. We're afraid we're missing out. That God is holding out on us. We have insecurity. We have impatience. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Remember that God is there. He's walking in their midst. He's talking to them. They have everything. They have God. But wait a minute. What about that tree over there? It has the knowledge of good and evil. What is God withholding from us? Is there something better than God? And they turn from their king. And we've been doing it ever since. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. This is how Israel did things. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, little came, no earthly king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So as we get to Samuel chapter 8, Israel's like, well, this is kind of a dumb system. People having all this freedom isn't really working out. We need rules. We need a ruler. We need to get the person in office who is going to solve all of our problems, just like we think today. Monarchies were not a new institution at this time. There were plenty of them scattered around the ancient Near East. Israel was unique for not having a monarchy. God doesn't want them to be like other nations. He wanted them to be different. He wanted them to be holy. He wanted them to be set apart. He wanted Israel to be a demonstration for how glorious it can be to live under the authority of God. God doesn't want us to be like everyone else. We're called to be different. We're called to be peacemakers when everyone else is gossiping. We're called to be thankful when everyone else is complaining. We're called to have different priorities, different life purpose, different attitudes on sex and money and family and work. They have a king, but why do they make this request now for an earthly king? Because they've had God as a king for a long time now. Well, I mentioned Samuel appointing his sons. Maybe that has something to do with it. They're like, man, this is not going to go good. These guys are not good people. Maybe it's because they do have peace and prosperity. Like things are going good. We could maybe build us a little mini empire now. Maybe there's some internal turmoil. The tribes are competing with each other. Or maybe these elders, these guys that are presenting this, they're, they're the 1%. And if they're like, if we appoint a king, we could really benefit from this. We'll be at the top of the ladder. We don't know. We're not told exactly why all of a sudden Israel decides they want a human king. The only explanation we're given is they wanted it to be, they wanted to be like the other nations. They want a king so they can be like the other nations. Verse 6 says Samuel was displeased with their request. Why was Samuel displeased? Again, I think there's some nuance in that answer. He probably feels some rejection because He's currently the leader of Israel, and his sons are leading, so he's taking it personally a little bit. But the literal translation is, it was evil in Samuel's eyes. That's what the, uh, Samuel was displeased with their request. It was evil in Samuel's eyes. He knew they weren't rejecting him, but they were rejecting God. And so he went to the Lord for guidance, it says, which is a smart move for always to do. 
Verse 7 says, do everything they say to you. This is the Lord speaking. For they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. And so God says to Samuel, stop catastrophizing. This isn't about you. It's about me. They are rejecting me. Verse 8 says, ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually, time after time, abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Verse 9 says, do as they ask. That's important. Do as they ask. God will let us choose to have what everyone else has. Do what they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. God will allow us to choose, but he also is going to allow us to live with the consequences of that choice. So here's what Samuel says. He says, Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people. He says, this is how a king will reign over you. Listen to all these ways a king is going to reign over you. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. Verse 13, the king will take your daughters and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your harvest and distribute among his officers and attendants. He will demand a tenth of your flock and you will be his slaves. So God says, here's what the king's going to do. He'll take and he'll take and then he'll take some more. Take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your servants, he'll take your flocks. And the best part is you get to be a slave once again. Verse 18 says, when that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. Verse 19, but the people refuse to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, even though all that's going to happen, even so... We still want a king, little g. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. They're blinded by their desire to want to be like everyone else. They're focused on the short term. They're letting their unsanctified desires be a reliable guide to lead them in life. And Samuel says, guys, this is a bad idea. Here's all the reasons straight from God's mouth. We have God's mouth too, his word. So all the reasons straight from God's word. And they and we say, nah, we know better. Verse 21, this ends the chapter. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. Goes back to God one more time and the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. And then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. That ends chapter 8. I know just enough psychology to probably hurt somebody, and so I hesitated to use this illustration tonight, but it, I think it will help put this together a little bit with how we function as broken, misfit humans. There's a disease called borderline personality disorder. My wife is a therapist. She studied, uh, got a master's in counseling, and so she's told me about this disorder several times, and I had a hard time grasping it. But here's the official definition. It's a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others, causing problems functioning in everyday life. It includes self-image issues, difficulty managing emotions, a shaky sense of identity, and an oversensitivity to imagined rejection. 
goes on and says, while those with borderline personality have an intense fear, fear of abandonment, they constantly push others away. While they have a fear of abandonment, they constantly push others away. Oxymoron. And like I said, Karen has explained this disorder to me a few times, and I've still, t- because of the name or something, I couldn't quite get what it was that it actually was. And then I saw that she was reading a book to learn more about it. The book was titled, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. That title helped me understand a little bit more about this disorder. And it is a very serious disorder. And if you leave it untreated, it causes a lot of destruction and a lot of pain. So I do not want to minimize the disorder. But that phrase, I hate you, don't leave me, kind of summarized Israel's relationship with God throughout their history. And if you know where I'm going, it kind of summarizes our relationship with God throughout our history of life. Maybe you say, you know, I don't hate God. I've never said that. I don't hate God. Even Israel never said they hated God. And maybe we can argue semantics a little bit, but the Bible says this. It says that rejecting God's will is the same as rejecting God himself. And so every time we reject God's will, we're rejecting God. When we reject God, we call that sin. Here's what our sin did. It choked Jesus, it beat Jesus, it nailed him to a cross, and it killed him. And so maybe you don't want to call it hate, but I couldn't think of a better word to use. And so the Israelites, they reject God as their king but they still want him to bless them. They still want him to be with them. It's a classic, I hate you, don't leave me. Person with borderline personality disorder, they typically don't know they have it. It's not something that you typically will self-diagnose. You might see broken relationships, you might see relationships suffer, you may feel regret when you push others away and then you're like, oh, but I want them back. But for someone who has that disorder, they typically are going to have to be diagnosed by somebody with the credentials to do so. We need to be diagnosed with our condition. Paul does that in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. He says, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. Enmity with God is what the other translation says. It never did obey God's law and it never will. That's our sinful diagnosis. But thank goodness, Paul doesn't just give the diagnosis. He gives a prescription. Verse 9, he says, But you are not controlled by that nature. You're controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. If you are here tonight and you can't see your hatred of God in your life, I just pray for God to show you that. But if you can feel it, As the song that we sing goes, prone to wonder, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If you can feel that, that's how you know you actually have the Spirit of God in you. Because only those who are empowered by the Spirit can admit that they have a king that their flesh continually tries to reject. We hate the king, we want a king. I started with those British royals and the Disney movies because I wanted to illustrate that there's something in us that wants a king. We are hardwired to want a king. We know we are meant to submit to a king. We know we are meant to give ourselves to a king, to adore a king. And if you deny someone's physical nature, the food that it needs to survive for long enough, studies have shown that people will eat just about anything, even poison. 
if you deny them what their physical nature needs. If we humans, if we deny our spiritual nature, the king that it wants will eat something, even if it's poison. I'm my own judge. I govern my own life. I want a king like the other nations have. Our king says we need to forgive others always. Do you know what they did to me? I want a new king. I want to rule my life. I want a king called bitterness and resentment like other people have. How stupid does that sound? Our king says sex is for two people in a committed relationship with each other for life. I want a new king to enslave me called lust. I hate the king. Don't leave me. Continue to bless me. Samuel does a good job of warning the people how a king will reign over them. Remember the things that we went through? The king takes and takes. The king will rule every aspect of your life. The king will demand things from you. The king will draft you to be soldiers in his army. The king owns you and will make you his slave. Samuel is not wrong just for a human king, but it's a pretty good description of our king, Jesus. God, what's he say? He says, be holy, for I am holy. Have no other gods before me. You can't be my subject unless you hate your father and mother and compared to your love for me. Always forgive. Always tell the truth. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Don't envy. Don't be bitter. Paul, when he writes every epistle, he begins with, this is a letter from Paul, a slave of Jesus. The God of the Bible is a demanding king. He says, I own you. You belong to me and me alone. I want to be a part of every aspect of your life from the boardroom to the bedroom. No wonder we run from that king. But let me allow the king to make his case, okay? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus, the king, said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. We like that. Verse 29 says, Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and, I, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. The yoke is easy to bear. The burden is light. In fact, we need the yoke because the yoke is the only way we get to freedom. Here's what a yoke is. It's what a farmer would put around their ox or their horse that he owns to control them, to exert control on their life, to guide them, to keep them on the path. For our purposes, it's the burden of having a king exerting control over our lives. That's our yoke from the king. Jesus says, though his yoke is easy, his burden is light. How? Let me give you an illustration. When I was a kid, my parents saw that I had a passion to play music. I saw that my kids did. They had a passion for music. And so what do we parents typically do if we have a kid who has a passion for music? We sign them up for music lessons. And mine was, my parents said, you need to learn to play the piano. That was the instrument they decided that I should learn how to play. And so eight years old, I had to be able to read, they said. At eight years old, they took me to piano lessons. And I met this teacher. She was like 180 years old. <laughs> Oldest lady I've ever seen. And I think she, I've, she lived for 10 more years after that. So she, old lady. Uh, she said, the only way I would get good at the piano is if I, she didn't use this word, but I'm going to substitute it here, if I yoked myself to the piano. In other words, if I spent time at the piano, studying, practicing, playing, 
hours every day. That was the only way I would get good was to yoke myself to the pianos. And someday I did like it, you know, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. You're like, yo, so happy we learned to play that one. Everybody, the Indian dance song, man, that was, that was classic. I played that for months on end. Some days I liked it, some days not so much. I had piano lessons after school. I would walk from my elementary school to the teacher's house. And so, man, I had to take my piano books with me to school. I grew up in the country. People drove tractors and stuff to school. Me carrying my pink little step-by-step Edna Bay Burnham piano book to school was not the cool thing to do. And so there were days I liked it. There were days I didn't. There were days I wanted to have a king like everyone else. You know who everyone else got to go home? They got to go play Atari Space Invaders. That was their king. I had to go home and be yoked to a piano, yoked to practice. Ding, ding, you know, same notes over and over. But as time went on, the yoke actually became a refuge. Yesterday, I was in a bad headspace. Karen can tell you all about it. And I came home, and I was in a bad mood, just grumpy with everybody. And uh, Scott, who had to leave, he had a speaking engagement tonight. But Scott, he gave me this app. It's like a mindfulness app. It's supposed to calm you down. And I think I was just too wound up. I just wanted to scream at the app. So it didn't help me a whole lot at all. And so what I did is I closed the door, and I went and sat at the piano for 30 minutes. And there I found my refuge. Because I had yoked myself to the piano for so many years, I now have the ability to express myself in ways I would have never otherwise had. My yoke to the piano is no longer a yoke, it is now a blessing. My yoke is now something that brings peace and comfort and rest. Psalm 2.12, it's a coronation psalm, I believe for David, um, but verse 12 says, Submit to God's royal son, or he will become angry, and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities, for his anger flares up in an instant. It's rough language. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. If we don't submit to a king, we follow this verse, it says, essentially, we will perish. There is no refuge from the king, but there is refuge in the king. If we come under his yoke, if we come under the king's burden, if we come under the king's enslavement, that's where we actually discover our potential, our identity. That's where we get rest for our soul. What if I quit lessons? I mean, most kids do. Or what if I just never practiced and said, eh, you know, I'll go and you can spend the money, but I'm not going to practice every week. And then, you know, I grew up and then I go to my parents and I'm like, Mom, Dad, it'd be nice if I could play the piano now. Why didn't you make me practice? Why didn't you make me stick with those lessons? And my parents would say, ultimately, the choice was yours. I couldn't make you practice. I couldn't make you go to those lessons. God doesn't force his yoke upon us. We have to willingly receive it. Israel put their hope in having a king like everyone else, a human king, a weak king, a king who would be distant from his subjects. The king is never with the people. He's over here. They wanted a king who would be arrogant and lead them to defeat. They wanted a king who would take and take and take and take. We can choose those kind of kings in this life, or we can choose Jesus. He's an awe-inspiring king. He is a transcendent king. The Bible said he's a roaring lion. That is how big and strong he is, yet he is a humble lamb. That is how meek and mild he is. He's a loving king, a just king, a king of grace and mercy, a king who is near us all the time, in the mundane, in the moments of weakness, 
in our suffering. And yes, that king takes and takes. He places a yoke upon us. He's going to ask you to be a soldier in his army. He's going to ask you to plow the field so we can reap a harvest. He's going to ask you to give a tenth of your grain to help build his kingdom. He's going to ask for the best of your time. He's going to ask you to pledge total allegiance to him. But it is that yoke that Jesus connects us to him. It's that yoke that constrains us into his grace, that binds us to his life, death, and resurrection. One day we will all stand before the king. And there we will give an account of our life. And it will become abundantly clear in that moment all the times and all the ways we hated and rejected that king. And here's what the king will say, Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Israel rejected God as their king, but God never rejected them. If we've placed our hope in Christ as king, as our living hope as we sung, yes, our hearts will wander, but he'll never reject us. I'm going to close tonight with a time of communion together. I'm going to use emblems, bread and juice. They are going to be our Ebenezer tonight, our stone of health. They're going to be a reminder of the great victory over sin and death that our king gave us. Ask the band to come up. We're going to sing a song called Come Thou Fount that I quoted earlier. I love these lyrics. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Constrained, I'm constrained, I'm yoked to grace. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Bind, yoke. Here's my heart, Lord, taken. Seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Constrain, bind, seal. It is the imagery of a yoke, of God knowing that we are prone to wonder and welcoming that yoke keeps us then connected back to the king. The servers are going to pass the emblems. Eat them when you want. As we sing, when you feel led, drink the juice, eat the bread, give a prayer of praise to God. Continue to sing with us tonight. Father, we thank you so much that we'll never be alone, that we have a living hope in you, Father. I pray that every day and in every moment that we would be reminded that you are our King, Father. And when things don't work and things make us feel uncomfortable, Father, help us to not get distracted. Help us to just focus in and plug in to you, Father God, because your yoke is light. We love you and we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Have a seat real quick. I'll let you out in a minute. In the church, <laughs> there are a lot of things we can make our king. We can make technology our king. Be like, daggone, the sermon's ruined. Slides didn't work. Control-alt-delete didn't work. I don't know what happened. It's our king. We can make music our king. We can make, you know, our building our king. You know what else? We can make our pastors our kings. We can put them up on that pedestal, put them up on that throne. 
We just celebrated five years as a church. And if you're new to Refuge, we are growing up. We're apparently not moving past technology problems, but we're, we're not a startup church anymore. And it's time that we go out and we get a little bit of help, I thought. And so I spent the summer for three weeks in Hawaii and I had two big prayers. One was a sermon that I preached. And you know what sermon I'm talking about. Number two, though, was about the future of Refuge. Where are we going as a church? Who do we want to be? What do we look like all grown up? Not that we are, but with the board's permission, uh, I began to tell them kind of where God was leading me in my heart, at least as a church, being uh, and to beginning that search for a co-pastor, somebody to come alongside me and help lead here at Refuge, because I will burn out if I do what I did for the last five years, for the next five years, and I'm aware of that. The board was aware of that, and so we began that search for a co-pastor to come alongside me, and so I just wanted to share that tonight. I thought it was fitting with the message with you guys. And just to give you a quick update, uh, I've got over 100 resumes. It's been a bear going through all of those. Of the 100 resumes, I've done about 10 phone interviews. I've done three or four in-person interviews. We even flew somebody in, got that far along, and did an interview with him and met his entire family. It wasn't the right fit. And so what I want you to know tonight is we are searching And I'm going to be very diligent, and the leadership team is going to be very diligent in that search because we want it to be the right fit for refuge. We're not looking for a king. We're looking for a shepherd. We're looking for somebody to come and pastor humbly this flock alongside me. So I wanted to make you aware of that. I want you to join us in prayer as a leadership team to pray for that, that God would bring us the person that he wants here at Refuge for the future. And so um, just join us in prayer for that. Also, I want to give you a quick update. Our building lease, because we're five years old now as a church, our lease ends next month for this, or not this month, it's September. At the end of this month, our lease is over. We don't have a home. But we're renegotiating our lease, and we're probably, we've looked at other buildings. That's been a whole nother process, trying to find a church maybe or a building we could buy and move as our permanent location. At the present time, with the cost of building, and and we have a fairly good deal on the building here, we're renegotiating a lease to stay here at least another three years and then re-explore where things are at. So this is going to be the home for refuge for the next three years. We're searching for a co-pastor. We are putting together some money from the landlord, and we may even be asking for some money from you for new carpet and new paint and just a little bit of refresh to the space because it needs it. This place is a place of ministry six or seven days a week now, and so we want to provide a good, clean healthy facility to do that that is warm and inviting okay quick update with what's happening here at refuge church that i promised for tonight this week as you go back to life i want you to feel that yoke of jesus feel that desire to run from it when he's saying don't do that or when he's saying do do that and just feel that desire that you have to reject that king and in that moment accept that yoke allow it to guide you allow it to lead you Not where everyone else goes, but only where God can lead. God bless. Love y'all. I will see you here next week.